Episode 238, Tom Applegarth, VP of Human Resources at Preferred CFO. So my favorite mistake was uh, when I was working for a manufacturing company that will uh, remain unnamed. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes, because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. To learn more about Tom, his company, and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markrabin.com slash mistake 238. As always, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to My Favorite Mistake. Our guest today is Tom Applegarth. He is Vice President of Human Resources at Preferred CFO. That's a company that provides finance, accounting, HR, and payroll support for small companies. You can learn more at preferredcfo.com. Well, Tom brings more than 30 years of experience to the conversation today. He's worked at high-profile companies, including Goodyear Tires, Payless Shoe Source, and Amico with HR experience across the United States, as well as Europe, Asia, and Latin America. Tom's experience has brought significant and measurable improvements in employee engagement, attrition reduction, and recruitment of the best and brightest employees, and establishing high-impact HR processes and improvements. So Tom, uh, with that, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I am doing well. How are you, Mark? Uh, I'm doing all right. I don't, did you leave? Did you leave the job at Payless because Payless still good? Payless shoe source is just really difficult to say. Yeah, that's not why I left, but yeah, that's why we just called it Payless. <laughs> Payless shoes is easy. Yeah, okay, that's easier. And um, I, I stumbled through that. The first time I tried was even worse, so I bailed out. I. I Decided to hide that mistake because it's worse than than what's getting published here. So I'm not going to try saying that company name again. Preferred CFO is um, less of a, a mouthful. So we're going to talk about that and some HR questions here with Tom today. But you know, as we always do, Tom, going to hit you with the main question: the different things you've done in your career. What would you say is your favorite mistake? So my favorite mistake was uh, when I was working for a manufacturing company that will uh, remain unnamed, but uh, but I was the HR person for one of the divisions, and uh, and we had a plant manager um, who who got a new boss, and so I, I remember the uh, the new VP of operations came in, and uh, and he was there for you know maybe a month. And he called me up and said, you know, we need to fire this plant manager. And I was like, oh, all right, let's talk about why. And he went through kind of all the metrics that they were measuring, all the plant managers that reported to him on. And and this person was just the absolute bottom. And I said, well, you know, he's been working with us um, for 30 years. So you becoming his boss after a month, we probably can't just go firing. So let's sit him down, go through um, a discussion with him and tell him what metrics that he's not meeting, and then give him a month or two, and then let's uh, let's reassess the situation. 
So he did that and came back two months later and said, it hasn't improved. It has not improved at all. I said, and I want to fire him. I said, well, let's now give him a written warning. I mean, he's been working with us for 30 years and you've been his boss now for like three months. So let's give him a written warning and spell out again what you did verbally before and kind of outline this is where you need to get. And if you don't get there, we're going to need to terminate you. Um, and uh, let's give him another couple of months. And so he did that. And then he came back and he said, it hasn't improved at all. I really, really just need to fire him right now. I said, let's give him one more kind of final written warning. I mean, the guy's been here for 30 years. Let's give him one more and then give him another couple of months. And if he doesn't do it, then we'll go ahead and terminate him. So he did that, came back. So now it's been like six or seven months and he hasn't improved at all. And so I said, all right, I'm okay terminating him. But he's been with us for 30 years. So let's give him, you know, pretty significant severance. I, I said, let's give him six months of severance. And the VP of ops said, no, you drugged this out, Tom, for seven months. I just want to terminate him and I don't want to pay him severance. I don't want to take that hit on my PL. I just want to do it. I said, no, no, he's been here for 30 it, years. At some point, I sorry to interrupt, but at some point there's there's like corporate policy that would dictate. Yeah. Severance, and, right? and this particular company, we had a policy if it was a job elimination. Mm. We didn't spell it out. We had a we had a a, a a labor attorney who wanted to leave that flexible. I'm like, that's fine. But our policy was one week per year of service up to a maximum of 26 weeks for a job elimination. So that's definitely what I was using as a rule of thumb, for sure. Um, but the VP would say this is for cause. This is yes. not a yes. layoff. Yeah, this because, is a firing. Yeah, were, right. This is for cause. And there were definitely um, sometimes, especially if it was a short tenured employee, there were times when we would terminate people for cause and not give them any severance, you know, and, and, but, but, uh, but in this case, 30 years, new boss, seven months, I'm like, no, this is, uh, this is just a real problem if we don't give them any severance. But the, the VP was absolutely adamant we not get any severance. I said, well, Let's go talk to your boss, the division president. Okay. Is this the tiebreaker then? Yeah. Yeah. Let's just go talk to him because if this thing blows up and he goes, gets an attorney. And I said, uh, so we went and talked to the, to the division president and the division president was also like, no, we're not giving him any severance. So at that point I went and, uh, and, and grabbed the, uh, the corporate labor attorney and said, you know, come help me, man. Cause these guys, I think, and of course, Labor attorneys are always the most conservative person in the room. So he was absolutely on my side and uh, said, you know, yeah, we need to give him six months severance. But but the division president said no. So the mistake was. I should have taken it to his boss, the CEO, I should have I should have elevated it and said, no, you know, we're going to go to the CEO. But and I, and who did you report to in that situation? The so I reported to the president? corporate VP of HR. OK. Um, and uh, and and I, I took it to I took it to my boss. But, you know, she was uh, she was not as adamant about it. Um, but, 
you know, in hindsight, we both should have taken it to the uh, to the CEO. So we didn't. Uh-huh. Um, we got sued. Uh-huh. And uh, and six months severance for this guy, you know, would have been high five figures, but it wouldn't have been it wouldn't it wouldn't have been six figures. Right. Uh, we got sued. And even when we got sued all along the way, I was like, let's settle this thing. And of course, once he got an attorney involved, he wa- the, the guy wanted well into the six figures. Yeah. You know, nobody wanted to nobody wanted to settle at that point. Everybody was asking me, well, you know, do you think we we should have terminated him? Was the you know, everything's correct in kind of all of these written warnings? And I'm like, yes, that's all solid. However, let's just settle this thing. Why do we want to drag this out and roll the dice? Yeah. And that one cost us a million dollars. Wow. A million dollars. And so that's so I've learned from that mistake. And that's the story I tell everybody who doesn't want to pay severance or doesn't want to settle when some lawyer wants 20 or 30 grand or 50 grand. I'm like, let me tell you my million dollar mistake. Uh, And uh, luckily uh, I haven't had that happen for a long, long time. Um, I've been sued a few other times when they wanted outrageous money, but that's actually the only one that I've ever lost. Uh, We've lost some other lawsuits and it's like, congratulations, you won. And it only cost you $70,000 in attorney's fees. Doesn't feel like much of a win, um, but uh, happens. (laughs) Well, um, I mean, at least not out of your pocket. Um, I hope you didn't somehow get blamed for this, even though you had said, hey, we should settle. I, I, I did get a visit from the CEO and he wasn't very happy with me. And, uh, and and actually, my boss, the corporate VP of HR, had uh, left the company at that point. By the time the million dollar verdict came, so I uh, I definitely got a black eye out of that. Um, but I swore to him, look, I'll come to you. No, you know, don't worry. Message received. I'll come to you uh, anytime. I adamantly disagree with one of your direct reports. <laughs> and the so the was the CEO mad that you didn't come. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Saying, hey, you should have come to me. That was, that was pretty clear. Yeah. Yep. Yep. He said, you should have come to me. You should have brought the attorneys with you. You should have brought the labor attorney's boss, the general counsel with you. I'm like, all right. Message received. Now, I don't know if he really means that because we fire lots of people every day. But uh, but he said that at the time when he was writing a million dollar check for sure. I mean, do you have a sense of how mad the CEO was at the division president or uh, the, the 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 departed VP of HR? Uh, well, I think he was pretty mad at the departed VP of HR. He wasn't really mad at the division president because he was like, well, that's not that's not what I pay that guy for. That's what I pay HR for. And that's what I pay the attorneys for. So, yeah, so the division president uh, kind of got off scot-free, but, uh, but yeah, the rest of us got a black eye for sure. Yeah. But, I mean, I imagine, I mean, to, to, to be fair to you here, um, the politics of the situation of you going to the CEO is now not only going over your boss's head, it's going over the head of the division president. I mean, I agree. You've got, you've got to be able to, I mean, you got to think about your relationships with them. That must have been a consideration, though. For sure, for sure, and I and I I probably I had a really good relationship with my boss, and I probably could have pushed her into let's just go to the CEO, 
And now that I have this story, I've actually had this happen several more times. And I always use that story. And I'm like, no, let's elevate this to the top. You know, the board probably doesn't need to be involved, but let's, you know, let's at least, and, and, and a lot of times just the threat of having the meeting with the CEO helps has helped a, a division president or two decide to go ahead and pay, you know, a, a five figure severance um, rather than even having the meeting. <laughs> so that story and that cautionary tale has convinced others to not, absolutely repeat, to not repeat that other company's mistake. Absolutely. Yes. Yes, I've I've probably told that story. You know, in my career, I've probably um, been involved in either me or one of my direct reports firing a thousand people, and that happened. That happened uh, like in the uh, early in the in the uh, first half of my career. So I've definitely got a lot of mileage. I don't think I probably got a million dollars worth of value out of that story, <laughs> but I've definitely gotten value. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um... So one other question, you, you might not know the answer to this, but I'll bring this up. So I'm trying to think of, you know, I started my career in manufacturing, so I can kind of, you know, picture at least generally some of the circumstances of, um, you know, some people, you know, people in roles like this. And the question I, I would ask, and if if you say, you might just say, look, I don't know. So maybe it's a mistake for me to ask you, like, over that six month period, what was the VP of operations or manufacturing doing? To help support that plant manager, other other than telling him, "Hey, you need to do better," or yeah. you're fired. Like, there's a certain role to help coach and help that plant manager. Like, say, Absolutely. "Okay, big Absolutely. shot. Um, help help fix the situation." Uh, yeah, right? he actually he actually I think did a really good job because both he and I spent a lot of time in that plant. We actually we actually brought in uh, we had some uh, lean Six Sigma experts that we brought in to help. So I think we did. I think we did all of that right. Okay. So um, not just pressure, but some attempts to help and research. Absolutely. And I think we did a really good job there. This was just a, a guy who had been running that plant for like twenty years, been working for the company for thirty years, and was, you know, not very coachable. Not very coachable at all. So it was unfortunate. Yeah, and 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 I can certainly see that being the case. And I mean, I've I've seen you know in my career you know, um, the change of a plant manager can make a huge difference in terms of just their leadership style, the way they're going about things, especially in the context of, let's say, lean manufacturing. It's a different way of working with people. It's not trying harder or, you know, yelling or pressuring people more more effectively or giving rah-rah speeches. I mean, there, there's yeah. there's different leadership styles that can be effective. And I mean, so do you know then, like, did they find a plant manager that could turn the place around either internally. We, yeah, or we did. We did. Yeah. We actually promoted somebody who was a number two at another plant, brought him in. And, and, and a lot of that plant managers issue when he was getting fired is we were kind of in the implementation of kind of this lean six Sigma program. And he was just fighting it tooth and nail. He was just, you know, it was just foreign to him. And he was just one of these guys that was not a continuous learner and he was like, that's ridiculous. You, you know, some of the some of the things that everybody was trying to get him to do, which is part of, you know, his plant didn't go downhill. It just went from being an average plant to the worst plant. Oh, and everybody else yeah, was adopting, yeah. you know, what they needed to adopt. Yeah. So it sounds like one of those situations of what used to work or at least what used to get you by no longer, no longer did. 
Yeah, the bar had moved. I mean, we had turned into a continuous improvement organization and all the other plants were improving except for him. Yeah. Okay. I mean, when I think of, you know, the, my, my first job out of college as uh, General Motors, it's no secret what company. I, I appreciate you keeping the other company name out of it. But, um, you know, General Motors, that first plant manager and, and, and uh, when he was replaced, new plant manager came in who had some Toyota training and this lean manufacturing experience, um, even though he was a lifelong GM leader. You know, he he would lay out data that we we hadn't really quite seen as such that showed he was taking over a plant that was bottom of the barrel in terms of like productivity, quality. It was the worst plant, not just in the division, but probably the worst plant, worst performing plant in General Motors worldwide. And that different leadership style really made a big difference and, and turned that plant around within a couple of years. But in in typical GM fashion. That plant manager didn't get fired or pushed into early retirement. He he got at least nominally promoted to a job at headquarters. So there's your there's your punishment, right? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, but um, in in general, I mean, I, I was going to ask, and you you already kind of touched on this. I mean, in a lot of ways, the role of human resources is to help protect the company from problems sure. and lawsuits. And, and this could be unfair, so correct me on this, but it, the, the role of HR is really more to protect the company than to protect an individual worker. Well, so, so I mean, I think, I mean, I think definitely everybody in HR gets a paycheck from the company and ultimately, you know, you need to do what's right for the company. But I do think one of the values that HR brings to an organization is being the group in the room that isn't solely focused on the company and that we do kind of play that role of saying, hey, look, let's take a longer range view of what we're doing. And ultimately, to be successful, you need to make your investors happy. You need to make your customers happy, but you also need to make your employees happy. And so, you know, there's a there's a group that's worried about keeping the investors happy in every company. There's a group that's worried about keeping customers happy in every company. And HR really needs to make sure that people don't forget about the third leg of the stool and only focus on the other two. And really everybody in the company should be focused on all three. And, and at least places I've worked at and, and companies that I've consulted with, you know, it's easy to keep Pick two of those constituencies. If you only want to make two of them happy, it's pretty, not easy, but it's much, much easier. The real trick is keeping all three of those constituencies happy. And if you do, you are really in the upper quintile of, uh, of, of companies. So I apologize for being a little too hard on HR and the framing of that question. There might be some companies where you know, uh, maybe HR doesn't have that same focus as you described it, and it kind of gives a bad sure. reputation. Yeah. Well, and it's easy, you know, there's like in any profession, there's there's good HR managers and there's bad HR managers. And I think the bad HR managers um, don't push back because it is the natural inclination of most people running a business to really, the you know, they have to worry about the investors because they're they're there banging on the door every day. And even in a publicly traded company, 
you know, the CEO is pretty worried about the uh, the the uh, stockholders. And, in a you know, when the investor is just an owner, whether or not they're engaged in the business, it may even be a little worse. And then and then, you know, it's really intuitive to almost every every manager that we need to keep the customers happy. What may not be as intuitive is that, you know, in the short term, it may or may not come back to bite you. But absolutely every time in the long term. If you're not worried about keeping the vast majority of the employees happy, you are not going to be as successful as you might otherwise. And so bad HR people might react to the manager and the manager says, do this, and they just go do it. Really good HR people without getting fired, but are good at kind of pushing back, bringing data, helping people understand the long term, you know. This might be the answer for today, but let's think about a month from now, a year from now, two years from now, and is that really the right answer? Yeah. So let's let's transition a little bit, and thank you for for telling that story and and the reflections there, Tom. Um, and this, you know, I think connects to the work that Preferred CFO does and and what you're doing there. So you're telling a story about you know a really large public company. You had worked for a lot of large global. Uh, public companies before. Um, you know, I, I, those who are just listening don't know, but I'm wearing a polo shirt from Kinexus, you know, a, a startup software company that's now after you know uh, now reached you know 40 employee threshold and just hired really first full-time business operations slash HR dedicated professional. But you know, when a company like that is new, everyone is either writing code, selling the software, or directly supporting customers. You know, when you're five, 10, 20 employees, you know, because I, I, I imagine, you know, it's just hard to say we're going to dedicate a full-time salary to an HR person at that point. Um, is is it a mistake for small companies to not have an HR person or is it a mistake to think the only thing is to hire someone full-time? Yeah, I, I think I think both of those are are, you know, mistakes. So for sure, a small company you know, might look at hiring a HR person and maybe it's going to cost them whatever, 70, 80, $90,000 a year. And they're like, I can't afford that. And I think that's really the niche that preferred CFO plays is you don't need to spend that kind of money because, you know, if you only have 20 or 30 employees, it's probably not a full-time job anyways, but you really want somebody who knows what they're doing um, because, you know, Another mistake that a lot of uh, clients make that before they become preferred CFO clients is they have somebody wearing that hat that really doesn't know what they're doing. And uh, and our government in the U.S., and it's even worse when you go outside the U.S., has passed all kinds of laws that can end up costing you a lot of money if you don't really kind of pay attention to what you should be doing. And then I also think it's really valuable to have somebody who's helping you understand how to recruit the best and the brightest, how to retain the best and the brightest, what you should pay the best and the brightest. And uh, and then it's always good to have somebody in the organization who doesn't want to be the CEO. You know, I, I, I work for a smaller company that was about 250 million in revenue, about 700 employees reporting to the CEO, and I was the head of HR. And I was literally the only one reporting to him that didn't want his job. And, and there comes a 
role you can play when you're not when when you're in the position you want to be in and you're not really looking for the next promotion and i could go to him and say things like hey i'd like to give you some feedback mm-hmm. and then giving feedback and uh and it's always good to have somebody embedded in the organization that's talking to everybody from the from the ground floor up to you know the direct reports of the ceo and then giving them feedback at all levels in the organization. I think that's another important role that somebody needs to play. And it's harder to play if you, you know, are still trying to position yourself for another promotion <laughs> than if you're like, no, I this is uh, this is my terminal position, at least in this company, if not, yeah. you know, in my career. Yeah. Um when we talk, I mean, there's a lot of mistakes a company of any size might make. Hiring mistakes, promotion decision mistakes, firing mistakes, as you've touched on here. You know, there's a, a piece of advice that a lot of people give. Um, it's real pithy. It's four words. So let me throw this at you and see if you think this is good advice or not. Hire slow, fire fast. Absolutely. I think it's, uh, I think it's good advice. Um, the only thing I'd add on that is, you know, Make the severance, um, you know, something that will keep you out of a lawsuit when you're firing fast. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, because I mean that that fire fast without. So, and you were trying to help that that company. You know, you told the story of building the quote unquote paper trail. I mean, you, yep. it's it's a mistake to just on a whim fire someone without. You're you're more exposed to a lawsuit. Well, so 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 there's lots of factors, and and there's definitely no totally black and white answer but the longer an employee has been with the company the the more you know um paperwork you need if the if the shorter somebody's been with the company so for example if if a manager hires someone and then like you know a month later is like wow that was a big mistake i need to fire them you know that's probably Okay, you probably don't need to go through a big long process because you know because everybody um, knows that in the United States most states are an at will employer unless the employee can make a case to a jury that no well the reason that they terminated me was an illegal reason whether it be because of their race sex age they made a they made a whistleblower complaint whatever. You know, so there's lots of laws on why it's illegal to hire somebody. But for the most part, if the manager was the one who hired the person and then a month or a year or even two or three years later, that's the person, the same person wants to fire the person. Well, that gives you a level of protection that's a little different. You know, in my in my million dollar uh, mistake, um, you know, a new manager coming in and now managing somebody for the first time that's been there for 30 years almost on its case you can say well this young whippersnapper became the boss of a older person and they were really firing them based on age which is you know i mean it's just a much simpler argument for an attorney to make that may not be correct but is the reason why you need to take a little more time firing a 30 year old person who you know, is uh, well over 40 when they're being managed by somebody who's, mm-hmm. you know, around 40. Yeah. Um, you know, so so there's definitely uh, some some things to take into account on your legal risk when you yeah. terminate somebody. 
And, and, you know, and thinking back to that, that situation, I mean, it does sound like the VP had data. It wasn't just a matter of personality of coming in and like, oh, I just yeah. don't like that plant manager. And you could point sure. to lack of action leading to lack of improvement. For sure. But still, yeah. there's legal risk because it, it's still kind of a crapshoot if it goes to trial. Oh, for sure. There's always legal risk. And and uh, and in most states, they only need nine out of 12 jury, jurors to agree. You know, so it's not a criminal trial where you need all 12 of them to agree. You know, it's a civil trial where you need nine out of 12 to agree. And so, you know, yeah, anytime it goes all the way to trial, it's hard, you know, and, and most most jurors are going to be a little biased against the company, you know, and, and a little more sympathetic. And, you know, so you got to you got to kind of think through all of those issues. Um, but but that's why I mean, I think we I think I don't think I would have done that differently. I just I, I think the guy probably I mean, you know, so since then, I um, I we've given severance to almost everybody. And and it's like. 95 plus percent of the people just sign the severance and they're done. I mean, it's, uh, it's, you know, so, so giving people severance and not challenging unemployment when you fire people are kind of the two, you know, uh, guardrails that I've uh, established for myself over time that it's like, don't, you know, don't do those two things. Um, and you're probably taking on more risk you know, what you pay and, and severance for somebody that maybe only hired, you know, a couple of months ago might only be two weeks of severance and that's fine, but give them some reason to sign a waiver, not to sue you because it's just cheap insurance. Yeah. <laughs> um, you never know well, what hungry attorney they might be able to find. <laughs> yeah. So I want to ask, you mentioned earlier, of uh, you know, people who, um, maybe get fired um, because they're a whistleblower on, on something that's an ethics matter or um, maybe something that they report to an outside body. Um, what advice do you have either for employees or companies in terms of, you know, making sure that there's kind of a safety valve or a reporting structure, forget about like, you know, you don't want to see anyone getting retaliated against, but Thinking about someone being in a situation where they think they need to, uh, you know, become a whistleblower, what what are things for that that person to to keep in mind, and, and what are some things for a company to keep in mind that best manage that situation, other than, other than don't retaliate? Yeah, I I think I think there's uh, three things that I always recommend companies communicate often and broad, and that's if any employee that has a problem. You should go to your supervisor. If you don't, for some reason, feel comfortable going to your supervisor, or you go to your supervisor and you don't get the answer that you think you should, go to HR. If you if you don't feel comfortable going to HR and or you go to HR and you don't get the answer that you think you should, I think every company should hire some some other company that is outside a, a third party. That is a 1-800 number or an email that they can go. And then every single call that goes to those companies should go straight to the board of directors or straight to the owner. I mean, it should be right at the top. And it just, I mean, those, you know, a lot of these companies and, and, and we, you know, and we're happy to play that function as well. 
I mean, you know, it's it's a pretty short report. It doesn't go into a ton of detail, but it gives you a little risk assessment. And having those tools in place really almost eliminates your risk of somebody then feeling like they need to go to the government or, you know, go to the press or something else because you have an avenue for people to really be able to address those issues. Yeah. Um, how, I mean, you know, sure. I mean, it seems like, you know, ideal, um, go talk to your supervisor and you, you talk about a situation where somebody does maybe gets brushed off. You're, you're told this isn't really a problem. Don't make waves. And well, that's not what I wanted to hear. But what if, what if somebody from the get go is afraid to have that conversation because they think they'll be punished or they're afraid to go to HR? Is it, a mistake yeah. uh, immediately, you know, to to take one of those other other routes, or is is that more no. just a function maybe of the circumstances? Yeah, no, I, I and I think that's why that's why companies should have that one eight hundred number, so that if if an employee just because you don't want the employee to just not report it and sit there and stew on it and you know, and it become a bigger issue. So, so these 1-800 numbers that uh, people can put in place and, and, and when we manage these functions, you know, the 1-800 number, we never, part of the agreement up front is the company is never going to get the name of the employee out of us. We're going to tell you what happened. We're going to give you those details. If you have follow-up questions, we're the intermediary, you come to us and we'll go to the employee, but, but we will never tell you who that employee is. And, you know, and for some employees in some situations, maybe the employee's right in, uh, you know, taking that tact and not going to their supervisor or not going to HR because they want that level of anonymity um, and, and maybe they're right to do so because maybe they have a bad HR person. Maybe they have a bad managers and man and managers of managers and and uh, and that and that anonymity is important to them. But as the owner or the board of directors of a company. You want that in place because you want to make sure you're going to get that level of exposure um, to what might be a problem. And and ultimately, maybe, you know, maybe the employee's still not going to be satisfied with the answer, but at least you see it coming as opposed to now you have the government knocking on your door or you have, you know, the press knocking on your door and it's a surprise to you and you didn't yeah. you didn't see it coming. Yeah. So you'd rather. I think ideally address the issue before it becomes something public. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, so I imagine, you know, companies should probably like regularly communicate whether they call it the ethics hotline or, you know, uh, whatever phrases used, you know, communicate that early and often. So people don't forget, kind of keep it for sure. Front of mind. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I think, Communication is one of those things that everybody knows that they should do, but they don't do it frequently enough. And so I, at a minimum, I think the leader of any organization should be in front of their entire team once a quarter. And it's easy to, you know, during that presentation to have like one slide, hey, don't forget if you have any issues, here's the 1-800 number. And, uh, and, and I definitely think that's one way to communicate it. And then having posters all over the place, you know, wherever you have all the uh, posters that you have, having it there. Mm -hmm. um, but absolutely communicate it and communicate it often. Yeah. And I, I, I can imagine there's a challenge if it's a low trust environment in a company to begin with, 
do employees trust the statement to the, you know, that, Hey, this is anonymous. I mean, I've, I've been in some healthcare situations where this isn't even whistleblower situations, but just around employee surveys, employee engagement and satisfaction surveys. And this is, this is anonymous, but then people, people talk and they whisper and they doubt, Oh, I don't, I don't think it's really anonymous. And, and, that, and that's, right. I, I don't know what you do about that, but it's certainly problematic. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I've had that, I've had that, I've had lots of employees say that to me in lots of different situations. And the answer is, and, and, and I think this can be, if, if you, if that is a real concern and it is in some units and, and we've done this before where we, that's why employee surveys and the ethics hotline or the 1-800 number or whatever you want to call it should always be administered by a separate company. And then that company, I mean, I can, I can, with a real straight face, go into any one of our 150 clients and say, hey, look, we're a separate company and your company's one out of 150 clients. I would never, ever um, put my integrity of, of preferred CFO at risk by divulging whoever calls the 1-800 number because your company's not that important to us. You know, your CEO get, gets upset. Oh, yeah. well, okay, yeah. I guess go work, go find somebody else, whatever. But uh, yeah. but it, it's, it's different because in that company, the CEO is the most important mm -hmm. person, you know, I mean, and, and for us, it's well, like, well, it's one out of 150. We've got, you know, Sales and marketing people who are bringing in new clients all the time. Yeah. If 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 that's the cost of having that client, we probably don't want them anyway. Yeah. Well, it's good to hear when you can when you can hold to uh, a standard like that. So uh, again, our guest today has been Tom Applegarth from PreferredCFO.com, or Preferred CFO is the company. PreferredCFO.com, the website. Maybe one final question for you, Tom. You know, when it comes to companies across all sorts of different industries, having trouble hiring people in the last couple of years, having trouble retaining people for different reasons. Another expression I hear a lot, I don't know if it's always fair or accurate, so I want to get your reaction to it. Nobody wants to work anymore. Is it a mistake to say that? Yeah, I I don't agree with that statement. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think, um, you know, People, because because I'll tell you, I've had I've had personal experiences hiring people out, out of college campus that have been phenomenal and have a great work ethic and are are really focused. Um, and so I think that uh, I think that there's there's a lot of a lot of people out there that really do have a tremendous work ethic and want to work. I do think that a lot of things have changed. You know, um, the the job market is much different now than it was when I started my career 30 years ago. You know, 30 years ago, there was no Internet. You know, there was, you know, uh, uh, classified ads. Um, you know, you had to it was much harder to find a job. And and then there wasn't uh, salary dot com and other places where people kind of knew what they were worth. And so. So I think you have to be a much better employer now than you did 30 years ago because people can easily find other positions and understand what other positions pay 
much easier than they could 30 years ago. And so, and so I think, and, 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 and so for that reason, because the competition is much different than when I started with Amico straight out of college, almost everybody started with Amico straight out of college and nobody left them. Um, and, and it wasn't necessarily because they were a great, great employer. It was just because it was much harder to find a job. It was uh-huh. much harder to understand whether or not you could make a lot more money somewhere else. Yeah. And uh, and these days, I think you have to just be a much better employer mm-hmm. to attract and retain the best than mm-hmm. you did 30 years ago. Yeah. Well, that's that's well said. And, you know, it seems like, you know, my take on it is, you know, instead of blaming workers or the workforce, I mean, it seems like, you, you know, it's an opportunity for companies to look at maybe you know not just compensation but culture when it comes to employee Absolutely. engagement and just the environment right yeah there's no question i mean you have to be in the ballpark from a compensation perspective which is why i think it's really important for companies to um participate in salary surveys and buy salary surveys and have a structure in place to understand who's paid below market who's paid above market and who's kind of paid at market and 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 then you know understand how you should use that information i think that's really important for people to do but but you don't have to pay people way above market to retain them you have to be in the ballpark and then it's having great managers and great culture and really understanding what each and every employee is looking for out of their career and then you're not always going to be able to satisfy everybody, but you definitely want to satisfy your top performers. You want to make sure that those people are like gold and you want to make sure that you're figuring out and bending over backwards to keep those very top performers. Hmm. Well, Tom, thank you again for the story and a lot of great advice embedded through all of that. Listeners can you know, at some point, hopefully benefit and learn from that million dollar mistake and not repeat that. So again, we've been joined uh, Tom Applegarth from Preferred CFO. This has been fun. Thank you. Thank you for being a guest. Thank you much, Mark. Well, thanks again to Tom Applegarth for being our guest. Uh, For links about him, Preferred CFO and more, look in the show notes or go to markgraven.com slash mistake 238. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work, and they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.